All right, the, uh, the scripture reading for this week is uh, Luke 2, 1 through 15. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All went to their towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver the child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So, uh, what, the fourth week in Advent? Uh, the big day is almost upon us, and uh, I figured it was about time to preach the birth of Christ directly, since, you know, we usually kind of push it off to the big day, and then we don't have a, a full church service on on Christmas Eve or uh, not on Christmas Day. So I figured I'd have to get right in there and tackle it and talk about it uh, as directly as I could, although apologies for it being the 22nd. I know it's like two days early. There's a purpose here too. So here's my prayer for us at Christmas is that uh, for everyone, we have a chance to reflect on how amazing and improbable and serious the work of Christmas is. That uh, when we think about Christmas, we should see it as nothing short of a permanent revolution in the order of the cosmos. And today I'm going to talk a lot about that permanent part. But the goal is for us to live as if it's the case, to live as if it is something that permanently and uh, enduringly changed the very shape of, of, of the world and uh, everything around us. We've said it here at Resurrection, and if you, you know, especially if you're like a Resurrection old-timer, we've said it in a m- number of different ways. Like, we've, had a, we've done the theme, Christmas is a declaration of war. Christmas is about reestablishing the line of David. Christmas leads inextricably to the cross. And like, I don't know, I get the sense that if you were paging through the sermon archives of Resurrection and wanted to know what we think about Christmas around here, there's a bunch of themes that don't exactly square with the aesthetic of jolly old present distributing elves and eggnog and figgy pudding. Christmas is a declaration of freedom. It's a call to justice. It's a starting point for a new world order. It is about creating the conditions for us to become God's people. And not only to become God's people, that, but in that role for us to burn with desire for a world that is redeemed, that is made right, and that seeks the end of the orders of sin and death and destruction. That's, to me, the point of Advent and the point of Christmas is that it's really hard to see the essence of Christmas through all the, you know, syrupy stuff we've piled on top of it. 
it's hard to see exactly what has happened there and its terrifying and naked truth that God has become incarnate and a specific individual and in, in, in being incarnate has called for and in fact has charged us with a complete ethical and moral and spiritual and material renewal of the world in the name of his kingdom. That's, that's the hardest thing to see, in my opinion, about Christmas. It's, it's, what, it's why we actually make a big deal out of preparing ourselves at Advent. Because it's, it's to see the world made right. We've talked so many times before about what's radical about Christmas. We've talked so many times before about getting rid of the sentimentality around Christmas. And I think those things are still true. But I think the other thing for us is to see, to really see that what happens at Christmas is a permanent and enduring change in the universe, one that, that materially affected things. And the more I think about it, and the more I got kind of going on this theme in, in the sermon, and you all could jump on this in a sec if you wanted to, like, I think one of the primary stories in, that we tell about Christmas in secular takes and in religious takes is the idea that what's beautiful about Christmas is that it is fleeting. Think about how many Hallmark movies you've seen or how many holiday movies that you've seen where the real thing about Christmas is the idea that it's this magic moment that happens and goes away. And, uh, and that's, in fact, the beauty of how we present it in our culture. There, if you think about it, a ton of them come to mind, like stories about troops in World War I who stopped to celebrate Christmas and then you know, got back to it after Christmas was over. And maybe the Grinch sees Cindy Lou and his heart expands for a little bit or the Prep and landing elves pull off a perfect present delivery or bells ring and angels get their wings or there's justice served at Nakatomi Towers. But the point of how we think about Christmas in our culture, I believe, is that we see it as something which is unique and fleeting and therefore it is beautiful because it is unique and fleeting. But the point of Christmas is once we experience that unique and fleeting moment, we go back to things as the way they were. What these stories get right about Christmas is it really is this kind of beautiful moment, but what they get wrong is the idea that it is simply a fleeting moment. With the birth of Jesus, things don't just go back to the way they were. It's not beautiful because it was then overrun by a series of changes around it, that it was just a moment that we looked at and said, oh, that moment was nice, but the world is going to be the way that the world does. It's almost as love as if we love the idea of the fleeting Christmas in, in addition to the sentimental Christmas because a fleeting and a sentimental Christmas doesn't ask anything of us. It doesn't force us to move into the world and think about it as being fundamentally different, but as a result of the incarnation of the, of the infinite and eternal God. It is beautiful, uh, the fleeting version of Christmas that our culture has, because it may avert a crisis, or we may have a temporary restoral, uh, restoration of the faith in the goodness of the world, but once the 26 rolls around, there's empty boxes and wrapping paper everywhere, and you've got a wicked cheese hangover, and you just want a salad. I mean, Christmas for us has become this moment that is a unique and special slice in time as opposed to something that permanently reorients the universe. That's, that's at least what I think we've been doing around Advent. It's that Advent is about preparing us to endure in the fight 
to realize the promise of Christmas. We began with the end of Trey's series on Malachi, where the big theme was God's judgment of the world, of the orders and sin and death and destruction that God was doing more than, I don't know, being a powerful divine super Santa who's scaring us into being good. Instead, God is using God's uh, judgment and, and redemption to, to, to turn us into something or to make us into something which is more beautiful and more powerful and more important and has a higher purpose than we normally have. That the point is that God's redemption refines us. It makes us different and it allows us to achieve the goals of the kingdom. That's the point of Advent and the point of Christmas that God is making us into God's instruments, God's people, God's agents of mercy and peace and justice. And that same purpose, that same idea that God is directing and preparing us is what we've been saying about Mary for the last couple of weeks. She's a prophet who delivers a word that reestablishes Israel. She's a, a daughter of Zion who makes possible the reemergence of the Davidic line. That's the whole thing is that Christmas is about the challenge that is put on each one of us by the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ, that we see that the cosmos has been turned upside down, has been set right, has been, uh, has been judged by God and condemned as being evil, uh, as being full of death and disease and injustice, and that at Christmas we are called to renew and to point to a faith in Jesus Christ who will take the world and who will repair it and who will establish a kingdom that is eternal, that is ever-ending, and that is perfect. That's the beauty of Christmas to me, the beauty of the idea that God is preparing us for something. And in order to tell that story, one of the things that the Gospels do, one of the things that we've talked about that is part of the fleeting moment of Christmas narrative is we always, uh, even in theological terms, like to talk about the idea of Christmas coming, of Jesus coming in the fullness of time or exactly the right moment in time. And that's a beautiful idea as long as you think that what happens at that moment extends throughout the rest of eternity. But, you know, the, the, the idea of uh, Israel being down on its luck, of being in a really tough position, is literally written into the passage that we have today. So, you know, in those days, a decree went out from Augustus that the world should be registered. Uh, the registration happened while Quirinius was the governor. Everybody went to their towns. Joseph went to Nazareth and Galilee. He went with Mary. The, uh, to, uh, it, it, she, and then she uh, delivers Jesus. Okay, think about that opening. Why is it that Luke opens this account of the birth of Jesus and is, spends way more time talking about the bureaucratic conditions under which Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem than he does actually covering the birth of Jesus? Why is it that so much time is focused on the line of Augustus and Quirinius and, and the census and all that? Well, think about it. If you if you, if it, it, there's this, it is a powerful proof of how the narrative of the gospel is this idea that Israel's fortunes couldn't have gotten much worse and then Jesus comes and all of a sudden there is something that renews it not only temporarily but into eternity. So we've talked, that, like if there's one theme we've talked about at Resurrection besides, I don't know, the agrarian practices and hospitality, all those ones that we know. One of the things we do talk about fairly significantly is how uh, the folks... Uh, who were targets of the letters and, and gospels would have thought about Rome. And, you know, we, we, Rome is a colonial power, and the Jewish folk around there uh, in the ancient Middle East would have had a fairly low opinion of it. And they would have had a specifically uh, low opinion of Augustus. And that's why Augustus is mentioned here. So Augustus, we know, 
uh, was largely tolerant of the Jews. He wrote a, uh, he issued a declaration of Jewish freedom around uh, 1 BCE that said people had the right to worship so long as they worshiped in the ways that were sanctioned by the empire. But as we recall, what that meant for Augustus specifically was that you could, you know, have the kind of cultural vestiges of Jewish religious practice as long as you said Augustus was the real son of God and was divine in and of himself. So we know that there's this kind of occult around the emperor that was about worship of the emperor, about seeing the emperor as not only the son of God, but as a God himself. And we know the emperor had this really strong relationship with a guy that becomes important in the story later, Herod. We know that he and Herod were comparatively tight friends. And we know that that Augustus would have rewarded Jews who were aligned with Herod. But if you were aligned against Herod, man, you'd you'd be in bad, bad shape. So here we have a a colonial power that has installed a local king, and then they have this kind of local Roman governor, this guy Quirinius. Let me tell you, he was no peach. He got his um, position as the governor of Syria for uh, tutoring Augustus's grandson, and because of some fairly brutal fighting that he did in Galatia. So uh, he raised the strongholds of the enemies of Rome, and he starved out the resistance, and well, I mean, here's the picture. Augustus is this guy who uh, believed that he was God, who wanted to uh, stamp out everything that was authentic about uh, the religion of, uh, of the Jewish folks. They hated their pagan overlords, and there they were. Their whole nation was not only under this colonial emperor, but, you know, well, colonial god emperor, I guess. And he had a public king and a warlord who were uh, running the province for them. It was a story of Israel not being, there's, it's, it literally Israel could not go any lower. It could not be made uh, more subject to powers external to it, except for the census. I, I had no idea about this. Uh, maybe someone else knew that. There's that two big revelations this uh, Christmas for me. So try, I'm sure you knew this. The Jews had serious laws against taking a census. So I, 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 you know, I thought it was like this weird plot trick just to get everybody into Bethlehem. But in Hosea 2.1, the, you know, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which shall be neither measured nor counted. And in fact, the rabbinic commentary on this makes two basic points. One, we were supposed to think about Israel as a nation. And so counting it individually would say that those individuals were more important than the nation as a whole. And two, the Jews weren't supposed to be counted because what's the promise to Abraham? Literally, the promise to Abraham was explicitly against counting. Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars and the sky as the sand on the seashore. The reason why there was a prohibition against census, the reason why it would have been directly opposite the identity of Israel at its root to have census is because it saw the people of Israel as countable and it saw the nation of Israel as composed of individuals. And finally, it was a concrete denial of Yahweh's promise to Israel that their descendants would be so numerous that you could not count them. So it's not just that there's an imperial governor who's a warlord. It's that this who supports a warlord. Here's this imperial governor who supports a warlord who has forced the people of Israel to be counted. There could be no greater defeat of the idea of Israel, especially given that the promise in Genesis is what? I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And why? What, what's the reason that Yahweh does that? Your descendants will take possession of the cities 
of their enemies. There is no lower point than being subject to a pagan census where your nation is counted and no longer seen in any meaningful way as sovereign and no longer seen in any meaningful way as exercising its religious practices in a way that would be recognizable. They were led by a pagan king. There was a, they were just a singular province and a massive empire counted like sheep, no longer a nation, no longer treated as a people with a special calling, utterly dispossessed. The census was a big deal. And, uh, and then there's those shepherds. It's, uh, as you all may know, it's uh, one of my favorite things in the entire Bible. That uh, There's this recounting of the census and the conditions of Jesus' birth. And then an angel of the Lord stands before the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shines down on them. They were terrified. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I am bringing you good news of great joy to the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Messiah. Suddenly there's a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who he favors. Good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born. If you read the Greek, it almost seems like a grammatical error. The news and joy are for everyone. The birth is for or targeted towards the shepherds. How can it be? It changes from this is a birth that is for everybody to this is a birth which is specifically for those guys sitting in that field. Because the good news for all of us is wrapped up in this very particular way of delivering the message. T.S. Eliot said, a word within a word. The word for the world declared to the dejected and the downtrodden and folks who are otherwise disposable. There's this theory that we have around here at Resurrection. I think this is probably the second or third time I've talked about it. I think Trace talked about it sometimes too, but there was a field for sheep just outside of Jerusalem, if you haven't been around for, for some of these. And the regulations meant that you could not grow sheep for food there. The laws dictated that the likely purpose of this field uh, just outside uh, Jerusalem near, near, near Bethlehem, that that field uh, would likely be the field where uh, the sheep would be grown who served as fodder for practices of sacrifice in the temple. So in all likelihood, the shepherds in that field, the one who were uh, visited by the angels that night, were raising sheep that, if you follow the traditions of temple Judaism, would have been the ones that made Israel right with God. They would have been, that, that is the field in which the sheep would have been grown that uh, were the, the source of the sacrifice that atoned for the sins of the nation. That was the field where the, the sheep were born and raised that uh, likely would have uh, been the thing that made it possible for Israel to have a continuing relationship with God, to fulfill Israel's promises to God. That f- the field was a big deal. And uh, as you know, there's a sad irony for these guys, which was, Shepherds were near the lowest and most disreputable members of Jerusalem's social order. They were poor. Being a shepherd was what you did when you failed at everything else. Uh, Society stereotyped them as liars and degenerates. Uh, As I pointed out before uh, in talking about this, for example, if uh, if if a shepherd witnessed a crime, the testimony of a shepherd was not admissible in court. Uh, because they were presumed to be liars. The towns had laws that said shepherds couldn't come into their city limits. And the temple establishment uh, took a particularly dim view of shepherds because, look, sheep and wolves don't know what time of day it is. So shepherds don't get the Sabbath off. 
they, they had to work during the Sabbath, and so they did it in contravention of the holy law. And if you're a guy who's out in a field watching sheep, you're likely ritually unclean because you had to perform all kinds of dirty duties, like you might have had near-daily contact with animal carcasses, uh, there were spiders, there was flies, there was poop, like everything around you made you ritually unclean, and you couldn't really leave or take a quick shower because the point of the shepherds was that they had to guard the flocks all the time. So as a result of being in that occupation, you would have been near permanently ritually unclean. And the Pharisees, the guys who were on the shtick about restoring the greatness of Israel, believed that the whole thing to make Israel great and to reestablish the nation of Israel was that there needed to be a meticulous observation and enforcement of the purity laws. So they pushed all these laws. There was a law that said that if you uh, were uh, a shepherd, that you ought to have been thought about uh, on the same level as a tax collector or a prostitute, that to be a shepherd was to be a sinner by virtue of your vocation. So you put it all together, and there's this cruel and irony, which is, I always imagine a shepherd dad talking to his shepherd son or daughter and saying, this is the sheep that will make God right with Israel. And the kid says, well, well can we ever go uh, visit the temple and see the sheep being turned over? And of course, the shepherds would have been so ritually unclean that they couldn't even enter the temple grounds, much less participate in the spiritual life of the nation. But their whole life was about making possible a sacrifice that uh, they could not witness and could not benefit from. The permanent cosmological revolution, the, an, an upset in the order of things, when God first takes on flesh, when the infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, immortal, eternal God incarnates in a human baby, that God does it in this story in an internally displaced person, a refugee, an outcast, a misfit of the colonial order, a person who is subject to a brutal military regime to be counted against the mandate of their culture and religion. And they are relegated to an animal's trough, wrapped in whatever cloths are lying around. And in that very real, very dirty, not just humble, but let's be honest, filthy, crappy barn, God the incarnate, the new king of Israel arrives, and at his birth, that God uh, is subject to a set of powers and principalities who sought not only to deny his divinity, but that tempted to deny his humanity that saw him as fully and utterly outcast and not meaningfully participating in the social order. And you know what? When that birth, that unique birth, that unsurpassably strange paradoxical birth is announced, who is it announced to? It's not announced to a governor or a king or even the sages in the temple. It is to men who are utterly and completely dispossessed, not only victims of a colonial power, but ruled by a well-connected warlord and a puppet king. But those men who received that royal coronation announcement, those men who heard those trumpets and saw the very host of heaven were people. People who would have been seen as worthless, disposable, alienated laborers. The first announcement of the world to that baby for all of us is to them, to men who are poor and unclean and tired and unable to participate in the full fruits of their redemptive labor, to men who are locked out, who are dispossessed, who are powerless, who are dirty, scummy, dirtbag, deadbeat, outcasts, a nation uh, in whose nation was under pagan domination, subject to a foreign king that demanded that he address them as a God demanding uh, in a demanding and deadening occupation, which put them on par with thieves and prostitutes. The angel of God says that God is born to them for all of us. 
It's not just a fleeting moment. It's a reversal of everything that sustains and everything that makes possible the orders of sin and of death and of counterfeit sovereignty. The birth of that baby and the announcement to those shepherds is a promise and a a challenge. It is a clarion call for us to live as if that baby and that announcement were more than just a one-shot fleeting deal, but were a fundamental reorientation of the world once and for all. Something already achieved, but we're not quite there. Let's live and love and believe as if the coming of Jesus matters, as if it was permanent in its effect, as if it achieved a revolution by lifting up the low and the lost and the loveless and the dispossessed and the defeated and the downtrodden. Merry Christmas doesn't seem to come close to cutting it when we see it that way. Joy, joy might get closer because the Lord has come. Hallelujah, glory, Glory to God in the highest. We have received our king. Let us receive our king. Amen.